When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. Lucinda Williams is a master of the art of the long game. A consummate disciple of American music, Williams has always operated under the assumption that when the craft comes first, the rest will follow. A rare quality in an industry that measures success by the numbers. She made redundant the question of what exactly her music was to others. Her main concern has always been to free her songs to take on lives of their own. The slow build-up of her early career eventually resulted in widespread acclaim with the release of her 1998 Grammy-winning record, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. A fan base already stacked with critics and celebrated singer-songwriters finally burst open its doors to the outside world. To this day, it remains Williams' best-known album, but her musical evolution remained as unaffected by external pressures after her breakthrough as it was before. From the much-anticipated 2001 follow-up album Essence to her latest release, Stories from a Rock and Roll Heart, every one of Lucinda Williams' creations is rooted in her present moment. Not for love, money, or domineering record executives has she ever tried to sound like anyone other than herself. While her legions of diehard fans may respect her unflagging integrity, it takes more than that to earn the kind of obsessive devotion she's inspired since the release of her first album in 1979. If Lucinda Williams occasionally comes across as overprotective, those who love her understand it's because she's carrying precious cargo. From her inimitable drawl to the delicately fashioned lyrics that are by turns wry and blisteringly sincere, Every aspect of her music feels like an encounter with a truth, drawn from a life lived close to the bone and free of restraint. In conversation with Fader contributor Holly Devon a couple of weeks back, Williams was as authentic and warm as ever as she reflected on her career and spoke about music as her one true love. Hey, Lucinda Williams. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How's your tour been going so far? It's been going great. Any uh, standout moments so far? Well... The main one would be the fact that I'm even touring <laughs> since my stroke. I didn't know, even know if I was going to be able to stand up on stage or if I'd have to sit down. And I haven't had to sit down. I've just been standing. I'm not playing guitar, though. That's the big difference. It was hard at first, but now I'm getting used to just singing without playing, which is kind of fun, you know, in and of itself. I enjoy just standing at the mic singing, you know, without playing, because it kind of frees you up a little bit more. Well, I have about a million questions for you. So what do you say we just jump in? Okay. There's so much uh, geographical specificity in your lyrics. You know, I think about Sylvia leaving Beaumont, Texas, and the night's too long, coming home to that house on Beaumont Avenue in Busta Baton Rouge. On stories from a rock and roll heart, you see that again in Hum's Liquor. So how would you describe your relationship between your music and place? I guess I started doing that to really just to add color to the song, because I think it is more interesting if you name a town, you know, to add description to the song. 
so people can relate to it better. Also, just the names of the towns are so great, like Vicksburg and Slidell and kind of musicality to them almost. I'm still writing songs the same way, and I like to think that's I'm always growing and developing and getting better. I mean, I certainly haven't changed my point of view about things. The style of music I like is the same. I still don't like contemporary country music. Why not? Well, I just don't like the production. The songs, I don't feel like are as good as they used to be. There are actually a couple of contemporary country songs out right now that a friend of mine introduced me to that I thought were really good. What's interesting is the theme in both of them is what happened to country. So, you know, I still, I do listen. I mean, I open up my mind and I listen, you know, to see what's going on. To me, your lyrics are really some of the best I know. Thank you. I work on it a lot, you know. Yeah, what's the process? Well, usually the first part is the idea is what I call stream of consciousness stuff comes out and you just write it down. You're not trying to make everything rhyme yet or anything. And then after that, I'll go through and put it together and, you know, organize it into verses and refrain and make sure the rhyme scheme is good and, and all of that. And, you know, think of the melody. Once I get the melody, then I need to go back in and make the lyrics fit with the melody. And would you say the process has stayed consistent throughout your career or is it evolving? It's been pretty consistent that way, except now I'm more confident about letting whatever come out first on getting that down on paper, not worrying so much right away about it being perfect, you know, because that'll come later. The song will evolve as time goes on. Then I might go back to it and fix one little thing that, you know, that I became aware of. You know, it can take a long time to sometimes with certain songs, you know, just go back to them over and over again and fix a little thing here and a little thing there and then set it aside, then come back to it again and fix something else or change something. I feel like you have a real trust in music and a real spiritual connection to music. Your lyrics really reflect that. Yes. Thank you for recognizing that. I'm still, even at my an older age, I'm still very idealistic and, you know, very passionate about what I do. I think you can really hear that in your new album, in the song, Where the Song Will Find Me. I really love uh, that line, the errand of the fool has carried me this far to the place where the song can find me. That was actually, I have to credit my husband with that, Tom Overby, who's my manager and my husband. He came up with that. It, we started collaborating on songs. How has that been? On the, it's going great. We, I never thought that it would be possible, but, you know, just kind of happened organically. We started doing it on the last album, actually, and it just kind of happened gradually and just by itself. You know, we didn't sit down and say, okay, let's write a song together. It was more like I would be working on something, and he was kind of shy about it at first. You know, he'd say, well, I've got these lines here and you might want to look at them and maybe you can use them in something or whatever. Now, you don't have to. You don't have to use them. I just wanted to show them to you, you know. And I would take them and look at them and they were good. He kind of kept it secret, I guess, for a while. But turns out he had really been into creative writing a lot when he was in college and everything. But he ended up becoming a record company guy, which is ironic. He was like one of those guys. One time I got mad at him because he was supposed to meet me somewhere and he didn't show up. 
And I said, fucking record company guy, you know, I hung up the phone <laughs> like, wow, I'm dating the enemy. But it ended up being great. You know, we ended up becoming really good friends and lovers. And, you know, he's great. Sitting on a stool In the corner of a bar The errand of a fool Has carried me this far I am a little curious about the New York comeback song moment. Are you referring to something specific or is that is that a social commentary? It's just a metaphor really for a comeback. There've been universal comebacks and then my personal comeback for my stroke. Well, clearly New York City had a comeback after 9/11. The whole country had a comeback after the pandemic. Nashville had a comeback after a tornado happened around the same time as my stroke. So it's almost biblical. I can't remember what order everything was in, but the pandemic, a tornado, my stroke, all of that around the same time. I think Tom came up with that idea of New York comeback. And you know who else collaborated with Tom and me? It was Jesse Mallon. He had a band called Degeneration. He would fly in from New York and stay with us for a few days, and we'd sit around and work on stuff together. Because I helped Jesse with his songs on his last album, and Tom and I co-produced that album with Jesse. So we formed a really good partnership when we were working on Jesse's album. And is there kind of a a guiding theme? I mean, I think a lot of the songs on this album, they're beautiful. I really love the production. It's really rich. Um, but is there, a, yeah, was there something that's been particularly on your mind? I mean, I imagine the stroke is uh, pretty at the forefront. I think there's a thread of surviving, kind of that uphill battle, strength, perseverance. Yeah, coming back. They think it's over, but they're crying. And the story's already been told. The writers have to hit their deadline. But maybe something will unfold. Well, I feel like the song Never Gonna Fade Away, that's as good a summary of your artistic ethos as any, right? It reminds me, I think, of the way I see your career, that you've really managed to avoid the pitfalls of the easy come, easy go type of success. Would you be able to kind of summarize what you think the key to your staying power is? Because uh, <laughs> I'm stubborn. <laughs> the blues guys used to say I'm too mean to die. Well, I've just seen too much of it, you know, in the music world. That's what... Real Live Bleeding Fingers and Broken Guitar Strings is about the tendency of, you know, the rock star. And then I wrote a song called Little Rock Star that talks about that, you know, that self-destructive thing. Do you think that the desire for fame is part of that? I don't know, you know, because I don't know what's going on in their heads. 
I mean, maybe they just think on some level, subconsciously or something, that the self-destructiveness goes along with being famous. Or maybe they're self-destructive first, and somehow they manage to get famous, regardless of their self-destruction tendencies. You know, eventually it catches up with them. It's hard to say. Would you say that you were concerned with getting famous at the beginning of your career, or were you just soaking it all in? And yeah, I was. I think I wanted to be successful to a certain degree, definitely. But I was also just soaking it all in and taking things a step at a time. I definitely didn't want to get famous at the risk of sabotaging my music. I remember being really afraid of that because I'd seen that happen before. Really talented artists and you know, would make an album and I would be like, why did they do this? You know, it, like it'd be overproduced and because they're trying to get on the radio or whatever. I, oh, I was deathly afraid of that. I was just like, I will not be overproduced. I will not let anybody do that to my music, you know, and that kind of thing. So that made it harder to get a record deal too, because of course that's what they want to do. They want to get your songs on the radio and figure out the rest of it later. Let's just get this on the radio and sell records. And I happened to get have some success in spite of not sounding commercial, which is hard to do. And I think that's just going out and playing live as much as I could everywhere. I just That's all I did was just tour all over the place. That's still the best way to do it, I think. And I'm burnt out and tired. And I wanna go higher and higher When I get like this And nothing's gonna fix it And I'm getting sick of it And all I wanna do is quit Yeah, I wonder if you've been conscious of feeling like at each different stage in your development, like let's say, you know, Car Wheels had one very specific sound and then I think you took a new direction in essence, you know, your later work as well. It's really a pleasure to watch you evolve. Is there a conscious sense of the way that things are changing or the way that your relationship to sound changes or is it all very instinctual? I think, you know, like the next record after Car Wheels' essence, I was conscious of the fact that, you know, Carwell's made such a statement and did so well. I was kind of terrified, actually, going into the next record after Carwell's because it's got to be at least as good as Carwell's or better, you know, because I knew it was going to be compared. But I think I did that because for a while, Essence kind of fell in the background. and It wasn't talked about as much as Carwell's and Everybody always said Carwell's is her favorite album and Carwell's, Carwell's, that's all anybody talked about. But then over time, people started coming up to me saying Essence was her favorite album and it started getting more appreciated. Thinking a little bit about the collaborations, I like thinking about you and your husband writing songs together in your apartment. Are there any other collaborations that kind of stand out to you uh, or surprise you? Um, you've worked with such an incredible roster of musicians over the years. I haven't really been successful at co-writing up until now. I got together with people to try to do that, but 
it's got to be the right person. A lot of people thought that, and I thought this too, that if you take two really good songwriters and put them together, they're going to write this massively amazing song. But it doesn't always work that way, you know. Like I got together with John Prine to try to write, and actually there's a new song about that. We got together and we went and had dinner and drank a bunch of wine at dinner and then we went to the Bluebird and ordered another bottle of wine and, you know, you can see what's coming. That as the night wore on, we just drank more and we didn't really get anything done, but we had a great time. And I did a concert that was a memorial tribute concert to John Prine at the Ryman not too long ago. And everybody did a John Prine song. I performed that song that I actually wrote it with Tom and Travis Stevens, who's a, a friend and our tour manager. And he's a singer songwriter, quite good. And I wasn't able to play. So that's one reason that I kind of veered into this collaboration thing. And Travis would play, then I would add some more lyrics, or Tom would, or Travis would, about getting together with John Prine and trying to write a song and it's called what could go wrong and everybody loved it you know because it sounds like a john prine song kind of but anyway it's on the album so most of your you would say that your more successful collaborations have been more musical like like steve earle or emmy lou harris yeah like singing on their albums but steve and i have been talking about trying to write some stuff together I feel like we have a kinship, you know, that way. Steve Earle is kind of the yin to my yang. We're sort of the male and female outlaws in Nashville, you know. Yeah, do you feel like your relationship to country, how is that affected by living in Nashville? Do you feel surrounded by it? I mean, you can be surrounded by it, but you don't have to be. If you listen to the a certain radio station, you'll be you'll hear it all day long. But you know, I'm trying to soften my view about it a little bit, not be so angry, you know. Well, it's hard. I think that you naturally want to have an artistic community where you're feeding each other and you're pushing each other. And-, and there and there is that here, you know. There is, definitely is that, you know. It's just kind of underground. Yeah, it helps me also if I go, when I'm feeling frustrated about that kind of stuff, to pull out my Bob Dylan and Neil Young albums because they followed that the right path. I think what's hard about that conversation is that it can seem judgmental. And I don't think it is. I think there's there's so many ways to choose, you know, a career and, and choose your path. I think it's just maybe you, you can tell me if you experienced this, but a sense of hostility for trying something else. And if you if you react to that feeling like the world can be like in the beginning of your career when everyone's trying to kind of put you in a mold. Well, you know, most of that stuff was happening inside the offices and stuff of the record company, so nobody knew about it. One example would be when I made the self-titled Rough Rough Trade album, the label wanted to, you know, they wanted a single off the album. And before they put that out, they they sent it to this guy in New York City to remix it for the radio. You know, anytime you do a different mix, it changes everything completely, you know. So they sent the track to him, Dave Thorner was his name. It wasn't his fault. He was a good engineer and they he was asked to do this. That's what he does, you know. But then we got the mix the remix back and 
the record label guy calls me up and says, hey, we got the remix back. Come over and listen to it. So I went over to his office, and he's jumping up and down in his Gucci shoes going, isn't this great? It sounds like a record now. It sounds like a real record because it was remixed for the radio. And the fact is I hated it. I thought it sucked, you know, because the bass and drums were pushed way up front. The vocal was pushed back, you know, it just sounded horrible. I, I thought that was the beginning of the, the struggle with the record label thing. Right. But I think there's something kind of encouraging about that, tension because I think it really speaks to the power of art. And when, you know, businessmen are anxious about something that they can't quite hold, it means you have something maybe a little bit um, subversive. And I think that's, to me, the, you know, the, the sort of obligation of truth telling. That's what I think of when, when I think about what the glory is over the fame. I don't know. How would you say you define the glory? The glory to me is being able to be successful and live on your art, like having your art support you and being admired by your peers and other artists and all the emotional satisfaction that comes from it, I think, is the glory. That's how I, what I think of as the glory. And being able to quit your day job, you know, that always helps. <laughs> I am curious about Sweet Old World really curious about what made you want to redo the album in uh in 2017 i wasn't thinking about redoing it but i think tom came up with the idea we talked about it just because some of the production on sweet old world probably maybe could have been a little bit better we were comparing it to some of the other albums and we had the opportunity and tom said well why don't we go in and recut some of the songs off of sweet old world and just see what happens because he was thinking, you know, maybe we'll come up with a whole different version or, you know, just kind of for fun, really. I don't know. I, you know, I don't even know why we did that. Now I can't even answer the question. <laughs> well, it's part of looking at what you're saying about your goal was to have this long career and you have, it's, it's amazing. And you're, you know, you had a stroke, but you're still making really brilliant music. I really love this album and thinking, I really like if you kind of visualize thinking about the ways that it's like, there are these kind of spiral circles of the way that, you know, you, you kind of, you, you evolve and you change, but then you come back. Like I noticed on this album, uh, let's get the band back together. You had a, a little bit of a new Orleans piano sound. I don't know if that was intentional, but it was, you know, I feel like in a lot of your earlier work, Louisiana was a much bigger character seeing it just kind of pop its head back in. I always want to try to keep that in there. <laughs> well, we had some great musicians and background singers, Margot Price, and her husband, Jeremy, sang on the Let's Get the Band Back Together. The object of it, objective was to make it sound like people singing in a bar. We've all seen the other side, up and down the coaster ride. Let's get the band back together. Let's get the band back together. Margot Price, there's some good new country, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's great. Yeah, there's some great younger people. They're newer, younger people. You know who I just 
adore is Sharon Van Etten. She's brilliant. Is there any uh, particular songs that come to mind? Or? Oh, yeah, there is one. I'm not sure what the title is, but it might be I'm in Trouble Again because that's the refrain. It's about spending the night at her boyfriend's house. And every time the sun comes up, I'm in trouble again. Really sweet melody. But, you know, there's something else going on there behind the sweetness, of the, behind the sweet melody. I really like your song Jukebox on the new album. Oh, yeah, me too. I like that one. I have a friend who says that Fruits of My Labor is the perfect jukebox song. And now you've written the perfect ode to jukebox. <laughs> <laughs> has, your, has your corner bar put the song on their jukebox? No, well, I don't know. That was a fantasy of a bar down the street that had a great jukebox. Tom and I were in New York City. I was playing there or something. The hotel we were staying in, there was a bar right next door that had this great jukebox. And we used to go in there all the time. And I would play, I'd get a bunch of dollar bills and, you know, go up and play a bunch of songs in the jukebox and just something I enjoyed doing. And he had that in his mind and he got the idea for the song. And Angel Olsen, I always like to mention her because she's another really good younger artist. He's doing something with in between country and rock. I don't, we don't know what it's called yet. That's her voice on the very end of, I think it's Jukebox. Yeah, the very end of Jukebox. She does this really cool as, mm, kind of thing with her voice, and it just makes the whole song. I like what you're saying about the Jukebox as the kind of fantasy. I have that with New Orleans dive bars where I think of, you know, as these kind of platonic ideals of a bar. And there's something about music being so available now that, you know, I mean, even when I was growing up, I remember getting excited about an album and that we just don't have that same scarcity, you know, but that there's still something about a jukebox that you can go into a dive bar and, and then play your song and get excited about it. I love it. I love, you know, being able to choose and pick the songs and you've got all these people in the bar and like, they're going to have to listen to what I want to hear, you know, because it's going to come out for everyone to hear in the whole bar. And I love looking around after, once I choose a song and it comes on and you look around and you can see people going, yeah, you know, like it's this kind of communal appreciation, you know, like somebody asked me, I was doing an interview recently and he asked me, he said, do you think there's still a place for the jukebox in our culture now because of all the streaming and blah, blah, blah stuff, you know? And I said, oh yeah, absolutely. It's never going to die completely i hope <laughs> thank god for my corner bar so close i don't need a car i think i'll wander down a couple of blocks to get to my So do you have anything on your horizon that's exciting to you? Not a damn thing. No. <laughs> uh, I just did a little home video promotional thing for the new album. We've got some issues, some versions coming out, blue vinyl. They had me hold it up and say, hey, everybody, look, here's my new album. And you can get it at Cobalt Blue. 
at your favorite indie store. Then I had to do one to, for Amazon, you know, order it through Amazon. Perhaps with less, less enthusiasm. Yeah. Well, you know, I still order from there all the time. It's a hard habit to quit. It is because you can get it so much so quickly, more quickly than other places, and they have everything. But I hate it when I read those articles about the owner and, you know, how he's treating his employees and all of this. One time I got in trouble with Tom because I, I went on Facebook and said all these horrible things about Amazon and, you know, and how nobody should shop there anymore. And then Tom was like, are you crazy? That's where we sell most of our albums. You can't do that. And I'm like, I don't care. I hate the guy who owns Amazon. He's not a good boss and he treats his employees horribly. Well, that's, you know, we're only hearing one side of the story and blah, 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 blah. And we can't worry about that because they carry our albums and we sell albums on Amazon. So <laughs> there you go. Business looms its rears its ugly head once again, you know. And I feel like you've been pretty outspoken politically throughout your career. I have, yeah. But whenever I get on stage and I'm performing, I always usually say something about one of those issues or subjects, you know, whether whether it be workers' rights or whatever war we happen to be in that week, you know. That's one of the reasons I love Steve Earle so much, because he's so good with all that. Yeah, does it feel like part of the music to you, or is it just kind of a part of being awake and alive? No, it's definitely part of the music. It's a little bit more challenging for me anyway, I don't know about other songwriters, to write a topical song. It just requires a different perspective, and you know, because you don't want to sound too hearts and flowery, you know. Come on, people, smile on your brother, everybody, get together. Try to love one another right now. I love that song, though. It was a moment, and but, you know, if I wrote a song like that that said that in the lyrics right now, it would be kind of, huh. That was Lucinda Williams talking to Fader contributor Holly Devon. Lucinda Williams' new album, Stories from a Rock and Roll Heart, is out this Friday, June 30, via Highway 20 Records. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfen. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.